Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And I know what you're thinking. We've already released an episode for February. We know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're aware. But this week is Eating Disorders Awareness Week here in the UK. And we are big on eating disorder prevention here at the Centre for Appearance Research. So this is a special edition for you. Right. And we have a treat of an interview lined up for you. Jade and I spoke to a friend of the podcast, Michael Levine, an emeritus professor of psychology at Kenyon College in Ohio, USA. Wait there a second, Nadia. You should say what emeritus is. I know, we can barely say the word. Yes. <laughs> so, barely say the word. Um, so, it's just a title given to a professor who has retired but maintains an active relationship with the university. So, maybe gives guest lectures or is continuing from research, that kind of thing. Good. Um, but before we get to Michael, the theme of this year's Eating Disorder Awareness Week, here in the UK at least, is breaking barriers and it's really looking at some of the stereotypes and misconceptions around eating disorders that delay treatment or even mean that a person doesn't receive treatment at all, really. Right, and in recognition of this year's theme, we thought we would talk briefly about a super relevant paper published last year by a friend of the podcast, Kenjin Sonneville, and her colleague, Sarah Lipson, who incidentally did her master's where I did. Um, So maybe she'll be a friend of the podcast one day soon. Maybe, yeah. (laughs) Um, Anyway, they published a paper together in the International Journal of Eating Disorders, which looked at the disparities in eating disorder treatment according to weight status, race and ethnicity, socioeconomic background and gender among college students. That's so aligned with this year's theme. Can you summarise the key points, Nadia? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Please. uh, Yeah, I will try. So, first bit of context... The results are based on a survey of approximately 1,700 young people who reported eating disorder symptoms as part of a bigger survey, um, bigger study. And Kendrin and Sarah found that of these participants, so young people who had reported eating disorder symptoms, of those people, only 14% had received eating disorder treatment in the past year. That's less than the one in three statistic that is often reported when it comes to receiving eating disorder treatment. Right, it's well known that eating disorders are undertreated, but yeah, this seems um, like even lower. And with this particular study, Kendrin and Sarah noted that this might be because they only asked about treatment received in the past year. They also included diagnoses in that are categorised in the DSM-5 category of other specified feeding and eating disorders, such as subthreshold bulimia nervosa, subthreshold binge eating disorder and purging disorder, which are not included in most studies conducted prior to the release of the DSM, which was in 2013, I believe. Right, I see. That that makes sense. And quick side note, I actually really like that you're using um, Kendrin and Sarah's first names. Yeah, I've been thinking about this, and it kind of feels really weird and kind of antiquated to refer to people by their last names on their own. I don't know what you think, but I, I just don't like it. Yeah. I was like thinking if like someone's talking about my work and it's just like, Craddock did this and Craddock did that. I was like, that's so <laughs> Who's weird. Craddock? Who's Craddock? <laughs> I don't know. They're like, call me Nadia or Nadia Craddock. I don't know. I just find it odd. And I think in, for me anyway, it sounds more respectful to refer to people by their first name. And we know Kenjin. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it sounds fair. Um, so did Kendrin and Sarah find anything in relation to disparities to treatment then? Okay, bringing us back. So yeah. <laughs> are you sitting comfortably? Um, ish. Ish. <laughs> in a, it's a good in interesting little, question. Uh, <laughs> in our little dungeon room. As comfortable as can be, thanks. Okay, Sarah. good. Continue. Okay. <laughs> because there's a lot here. Right. 
So, they found individuals with symptoms of threshold anorexia nervosa, so the least common eating disorder, were significantly more likely to perceive a need for eating disorder treatment, be diagnosed and receive treatment when compared to individuals with all other types of eating disorder presentations. They also found that weight was related to perceived need for treatment and the likelihood of getting a diagnosis. So those of low weight or classed as underweight according to BMI criteria, which we don't like particularly, Mm -hmm. um, were most likely to perceive a need for treatment, so themselves perceive a need for treatment, and most likely to receive a diagnosis or treatment. Meanwhile, surprise, surprise, those of higher weight had a lower likelihood of receiving an eating disorder diagnosis. I mean, that's definitely no surprise there. This really reflects the stereotype that people have, that you need to be thin to have an eating disorder. Right, it's so problematic. And talking about stereotypes, um, the study also found that students of colour were significantly less likely to receive an eating disorder diagnosis compared to white students. And then men in the study were less likely to perceive a need for treatment and then receive eating disorder treatment or an eating disorder diagnosis. Last one... The non-affluent students in their study were also less likely to perceive a need for treatment and then to receive treatment in in that past year. So basically, if not the stereotypical, thin, affluent, white, typically teenage girl, Mm. you're less likely to get an eating disorder diagnosis. Right, it definitely seems that way. And it also seems that it's people who are experiencing the eating disorder symptoms kind of feel that they're less likely to, or that they're less likely to kind of deserve treatment maybe, or maybe don't see that an eating disorder label kind of fits them because that's not what they see as perceive. a person. Yeah, with, stereotypes with, affect yeah. what you perceive as well, don't they? Yeah, about yourself. And yeah. then it also can influence healthcare professionals too. Um, so problematic when it comes to um, treatment. And we know with eating disorders that the earlier the treatment, the better. Um, right, I agree. It's a dangerous stereotype. And, you know, both people experience eating disorder symptoms and healthcare professionals seem to hold these kind of stereotypes And it is at least delaying treatment, which obviously, like you said, Nadia, is important to have that early on, or just potentially preventing treatment at all. Yeah, which circles us back round to the statistic that on average we're getting like 20 to 30% of people with eating disorder symptoms having treatment. So there's so many people that are not having treatment at all. Um, Agreed. So anyway, if you want to find out more about this year's theme, uh, we recommend you check out Beat's website. It's a great place for eating disorder resources, and, and we'll put a link in our show notes. Great. And now I think it's time to hear from Michael, don't you, Nadia? Yeah, agreed. So just briefly, Michael Levine is, is an emeritus. Now we saying? know that word. Yeah, I know. Emeritus. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, professor of psychology at Kenyon College in Ohio, USA. Michael is an expert in eating disorder prevention with a special interest in the meaning and relevance of social cultural factors. We spoke to him a couple of weeks ago to talk more about eating disorder prevention. Hi, Michael. Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Great. So first question we have is we often hear in the news that eating disorders are becoming more common. So now we know you've worked in eating disorder prevention research for some time. Do you see that to be the case? If so, kind of why? I think the most honest answer I can give you is that no one really knows for sure how common eating disorders are. And that makes it very difficult to answer the question of whether they're becoming more common. Yeah. And I, I say that not to avoid answering 
but rather to remind people that those kinds of statements should be taken very cautiously and people should remember, in my opinion, that it's very difficult to define what an eating disorder is in a culture that maintains so many eating disordered attitudes mm -hmm. and yeah. so many unrealistic expectations, if not ideals, and fantasies about weight and shape and gender and control and perfection and so on. And so I sometimes see statistics that indicate in any large group of young women ages, say, 13 to 25, maybe as many as 15% of them are struggling with disordered eating, mm -hmm. some of which would meet the criteria for an eating disorder. And at the same time, when you look at the epidemiology, you see very different kinds of statistics. Very large-scale studies suggest that, for instance, the point prevalence of anorexia nervosa in that group I just mentioned may be something like two out of a thousand, mm -hmm. three out of a thousand. It's hard to reconcile those point prevalences with the estimates you read from recognized experts in prevention, such as Eric Stice. Mm -hmm. and, and that doesn't mean that he's wrong. It simply means it's really hard to say other than I don't see much evidence that the broad spectrum of disordered eating and significant body image problems is declining in a meaningful sense. Mm. I've seen right. some data suggesting that the prevalence of bulimia nervosa, classically defined, is declining. And at the same time, study after study after study that comes out of the epidemiology field or out of surveys of high school students, college students, medical students mm -hmm. and such suggest that the kinds of problems that you're talking about are common, if not, I'll say, um, prevalent. I hate to use the word rampant or epidemic. I don't think that mm -hmm. language helps. Mm -hmm. So there's the short answer to your question. I think you, for me, raised a really good point because I think I think one thing to think about when we're looking at these like headlines and talking about increases of eating disorders is that we've expanded the DSM definition, so that can also kind of indicate or suggest why we've got more, more numbers. And then like, kind of going back to what you're saying about the society that we live in and why we have the kind of population prevention data that has such high incidence of disordered eating is that we're taught disordered eating. Like we're taught like diet culture, we're like mm. kind of taught to be like restrained in how we're eating and the natural pendulum swing to restrained eating is, is binge eating. So then people mm. do get caught into those kind of traps. So that's why the prevalence rates can be so high. I agree. It's very hard to define the word disorder mm -hmm. alone what constitutes an eating disorder. When I was a professor, I came up with an acronym that I like. And that acronym is I-M-A-D, I-MAD. And the I stands for, for inefficiency. 
The M stands for misery, the A stands for alienation, and the D stands for disturbance. And I think if people think about these kinds of problems, whether it's their own issues or people they're concerned about, I ask myself the question, is this set of issues causing inefficiency? Is it causing the person to be unable to perform the tasks and day-to-day -day functions that they want to be performing? Is it undercutting their potential in significant ways? Is it causing them to be chronically ill and fatigued at a level that we might not call disease or sickness, but a level that shows up? The M stands for misery, and I think everyone knows what that means. Yeah. Mm. Levels of anxiety, levels of despair, levels of, of, of preoccupation, levels of shame, guilt, so on, that, again, are interfering with the person's ability to enjoy life, their ability to focus on the things they want to be focusing on, their ability to participate when they're throwing a ball or they're walking the dog, what they're thinking about is how they look or whether they've eaten too much mm -hmm. during the day and they're not focused on the day, they're not focused on the dog, they're focused on themselves. Uh, alienation, I think people know what that means too. Is the set of issues cutting you off from other people? Is it making it hard to relate to your friends, to your family? Are you focused on how other people look in comparison to you and not what they're saying, not their strengths, not how they're contributing to society. You're focused on what they look like and how they're eating and so on. And the D stands for disturbance. That is, is what you're doing, the set of problems and issues we're talking about concerning food, weight, shape, and so on. Is it causing you to be concerned about yourself? Is it causing you to wonder, what the heck am I doing here? Is it causing you to think, Oh my God, this, what did I just do? Or is it disturbing others? Are other people seeking to talk to you? Are they asking you, are you okay? Are they asking you, is everything fine with you? To me, you have a problem with weight and shape and control and eating and shame and guilt if you meet all four of those criteria. Out of the four, mm -hmm. it's probably worth having the issue evaluated. Does that, does that make sense? That in our culture, it's really hard to draw a line. I think what I really like about that is thinking, it's kind of taking, I think when we talk about eating disorders so much, it's that we overemphasize the weight and with the stereotypical idea of being very, very, very low weight. So that, that there's that focus. And then the whole bit about, it's all about the food. If you just focus just on the food aspect and you're not focusing on the, the misery and the alienation and the disturbance, you're not really getting that whole picture of how it affects someone's life. And exactly as Michael said, how it affects how someone functions daily yeah. in their day-to-day -day activities is a very important factor to consider. Yes, and I hear people say, well, eating disorders are just, you've probably heard the word just used. Yeah. They're just a problem of self-esteem. They're just an extension of body image issues. Mm -hmm. They're just a matter of healthy eating getting out of hand. They're just anyone who uses the word just in a sentence that involves eating disorders 
in my opinion, doesn't understand from a scientific point of view, from a cultural point of view, from a personal phenomenological point of view, doesn't understand eating disorders. Eating disorders are, of course, about eating. Eating disorders often are about body image. Mm -hmm. Eating disorders are often about the self and identity and one's feelings and, and beliefs about oneself. And, it's our favorite word, and, they're also about disorder and all the complexities of what constitutes a disorder. And that makes it very hard to prevent the disorders. Mm -hmm. It makes it very hard to treat them in many ways because we don't want to approach an eating disorder focusing, I think, solely on food. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be food preoccupied as we help somebody with their food preoccupations. And that's going to be easy to do in a culture that, as Nadia said, is so preoccupied with weight and shape and food and control. We as prevention specialists or we as therapists or we as researchers, we feed that, pun intended, mm-hmm. when we become preoccupied with one aspect or another. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. And kind of like going back to the question as well with what you said, Michael, it kind of means it's hard for us to understand, which is why I really liked your honesty of answering this, how common eating disorders are because there's so many elements to it. And, you know, it means it's quite a poignant point that I think you made. When you see statistics, when you see these kind of things that are presented, taking them with a pinch of salt, understanding that there's so much more complexities to this picture and understanding that it's quite difficult for us to really know. Yes, and I I believe that broad picture you just painted, Jane, is even broader when one considers that most of the time the set of disorders we're talking about are shrouded in or mystified by shame, secrecy, um, ambivalence, Yes, I want help desperately, but I don't want to be fat, or I don't want you taking control of my life, or I don't want you to read. What I want help is doing what it is I want to do, but not putting myself in danger. That's a There's a big difference between help me continue as I feel I need to be without dying or without really harming myself, and help me recover, help me restore a a vital life. And so I think when you try to gather information about prevalence and you try to gather, you run into many of the obstacles I know you addressed on your podcast with regard to people getting help or people seeking assistance. The data are very clear that when studies are conducted in in communities, that we're missing a lot of people who are suffering. Right. We kind of hit one demographic a lot more than others, don't we? Michael, I want to ask you, because I know the majority of your work is really focused on eating disorder prevention. So based on what we know and like the current knowledge, our current understanding, what are the most effective ways to prevent eating disorders? Let me give you a specific (laughs) answer and not give you a general answer that might help people. 
That'd be great. As they think about it, there are several programs available now that have shown not only efficacy in, in their application, but also what we might call effectiveness. That is, they tend to work under a wide variety of conditions. They tend to work when they're implemented by experts, when they're implemented by uh, local counselors, when they're implemented by uh, students. Um, the body project, which you may have addressed on your mm-hmm. program before, uh, has been shown to be an effective way to reduce risk factors and in some instances prevent the onset of new cases of eating disorders. There's an online program that's been in development really almost 25 years called Student Bodies, which is a fabulous program uh, done in collaboration between Stanford University, Washington University, St. Louis, and um, a German university, I believe in Dresden, that uh, has been working for many, many years doing online programming, primarily for people who are at higher risk for eating disorders, but is moving in the direction of various levels of risk. Eric Stice, who's done the Body Project, also has a healthy weight program that is controversial in some ways because it does talk about weight management. It does talk about healthy eating versus non-healthy eating. And at the same time, it's been shown to be effective in in prevention. So there are some programs. Uh, Neva Piran, one of the most amazing women I have mm-hmm. ever met in so many respects and, and really a giant in the area of prevention and, and now risk factor mm-hmm. research. Yeah. Uh, so there are some programs, and if anybody wants more information about those programs specifically, he or she can feel free to email me. It's Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E, at Kenyon, K-E-N-Y-O-N dot E-D-U. Email me, I'll send you more information about those programs. I'm very generous, Michael, thank you. We'll put that in the well, show notes as yeah. well then. Those of your... Um, your listeners who are particularly interested in in positive body image and the development of um, body acceptance and positive body image, I think we'll find what I'm going to say next particularly interesting. I spent the last 25 years, 30 years myself, trying to understand the prevention of eating disorders and trying to determine what is it that all the successful programs or the programs that appear successful, what is it that they have in common? And it's really hard. Like It's like asking, what do all eating disorders have in common? Right. Anything you bring up, people are going to say, well, my, my daughter didn't have that, or I didn't have that, or I've worked with patients who didn't. And yet, there are certain elements that the more of those that are present, the more likely you are to have confidence that there's an eating disorder. Correct? If I were to ask you to define what is a bird, you might say, well, birds have wings. Well, airplanes have wings. Right. Right? And you'd say, well, birds have claws. Well, some lizards and other reptiles have claws. Uh, Birds have beaks. Well, octopi have beaks. (laughs) You say, well, you're playing with words now. No, I'm saying that it's really hard to define what is necessary and sufficient to constitute 
a bird. And yet you and I have no trouble distinguishing birds from octopi, right? Most of the time. Yeah, I think we can do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're supposed to say yes when yeah. I... <laughs> Just thinking about it. <laughs> because that's because the more of those features that are present, the more confidence you have that we're talking about a bird, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, good, analogy. A, it's a moment, good analogy. For a moment, about the DSM. I hate to bring that up in polite company, but <laughs> think about the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And if you're familiar with eating disorders or depression or somatization disorder or whatnot, it takes that kind of prototypical approach. Well, I've taken that approach when it comes to prevention. I believe that the more of the following that are present, the more likely it is that a prevention program will be successful. Number one, connection, interpersonal connection. This mm -hmm. I took from Neva Piran. Right. The more the opportunity for inter meaningful interpersonal connections within a group, between people and a mentor, between people and people outside the group, the community, the greater the probability a program will be successful. Secondly, and this won't surprise you, consciousness raising. I'm not just talking about education. I'm talking about the kind of consciousness raising that the Center for Appearance Research has been doing for a long, long time. Raising people's consciousness about media. Raising mm -hmm. people's consciousness about the relationships between culture, power, economics, food, eating, control, and mm -hmm. such. Competence. Raising people's level of skill. You raise your awareness about media, you become upset about media portrayals of this and that, women, control, sexuality, become upset about objectification. What can you do? Say you could write a letter to the offending business. Well, how do you write a business letter? To whom do you send it? How is a business organized? I mean, that's skill, knowing that. Um, you can make your own media the way you're mm -hmm. making media now. How does yeah. one do that? You're not born knowing how to create a podcast. No, absolutely not. <laughs> we wish. <laughs> you, you develop skills if you're following me here. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, letter writing, public speaking, advocacy, yeah. and so on. Advocacy um, was the word I was, when you were and, talking about. Yeah, okay. you, you use those skills to create change. Mm -hmm. You don't just talk about culture and body image. You don't just talk about some of the factors that generate risk for eating disorders. You address those factors through your prevention program. And when you're the mentor, the leader of this prevention program, you don't tell, you don't empower people by telling them what to do. Mm -hmm. You don't say, girls, the media have led you wrong. The media have led you astray. I'm a white male with a PhD. When have we ever led you astray? You should listen to me. It's very true. It's, yeah. It's... You, you empower, through those connections mm -hmm. I mentioned, yeah. you empower people to make choices and then finally i think I've, i'm covering them all i'm doing this from memory um, 
this kind of activity, choice, change, competence building, and mm-hmm. so on, it takes courage. People are going to feel awkward. They're going to be uncertain. They're going to be anxious. If you were 15, 17, even the age you are now, say 20, you're going to feel uncertain about taking on businesses. You're going to feel uncertain about going out into your community and commandeering uh, the library for an evening and putting on a program. You're going to feel uncertain about confronting the principal of your school. You're going to feel uncertain about going to the school board or going to the Girl Scouts. You're going to feel uncertain about these things. And it needs doing. So one of the factors that contributes here is courage. That's how I think of what makes a successful program. There's mm-hmm. lots of different things that people are doing. Yeah. And I look for commonalities. The more of those seeds that are present, the more likely it is to be a successful program. And I hear people saying, well, the body project is a dissonance-based program and it's been successful and it may be the only real successful program. I, I, I dispute that. And I would argue that the body project does a lot more than raise awareness about culture in a way that generates cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. It incorporates in some ways many of those factors. And particularly when it's peer led, yeah. particularly when it's being disseminated via uh, scouts and some mm-hmm. of the work that's been done at the Center for Appearance yeah. Research. Yeah. Um, so that's my short answer. As to what makes a uh, a successful program, I really like the season. I think how it's all underpinned by courage is is a really nice way of thinking about it, and I think it's important. It's a strong word. So, Michael, you alluded to to a couple of things, but I wonder if we can kind of dig into it a little deeper, because sometimes we hear about eating disorder prevention efforts and actions backfiring or potentially being harmful to to some groups of people. And so, what do we know about this, and what do we really want to avoid doing? Because I think a lot of things are well-intentioned and people are feel very passionately about this and, and, and want to help, but maybe kind of jump and, and just do what they think intuitively rather than maybe kind of like taking a step back, looking at the research, looking at what we know. And so I wonder what maybe not well-advised or what we know from the research is not, not necessarily helping. Two immediate reactions. One is, or maybe three immediate reactions. Okay. <laughs> One is it's always a good idea to be concerned about the potential for doing harm. Right. And I don't say that lightly. And I also want to remind people that that is a major concern in any study of, say, treatment. Mm -hmm. There's a long and often ignored literature on the potential for psychological treatments and medical treatments to do harm. So there's no question that we need to be very careful in, in programming and in doing research on prevention to think carefully about the risks, the potential benefits, informed consent, and so mm-hmm. on. Secondly, the few meta-analyses that are available and the few systematic studies of prevention research suggests that very little evidence of of harm being done. That doesn't mean it's not possible. It suggests that it doesn't 
often happen in systematic studies. Right. On the other hand, if you look at an analogous literature, and that is the prevention of alcohol and cigarette smoking, the research suggests that those programs that rely solely on education and solely on describing the problem and what people do and the negative consequences, people drink like this and this is what happens to mm -hmm. them, those programs can be successful, but they are also riskier, if that makes sense. That is, it doesn't mean they can't work, it simply means you run a much higher risk of inadvertently teaching people hmm. certain values, even certain behaviors. Right. So telling people, look, here's a disorder called, binge, called bulimia nervosa, and here are the signs and symptoms of them, unhealthy values, unhealthy behaviors. We don't want to glamorize these disorders in some ways. Analogous to the person who mm -hmm. comes into your classroom, he or she looks like a million bucks, they're wearing $2,000 worth of clothes, and they're saying, you won't believe how ill I was, and I'm so glad to be recovered, and this is what I did. It's all too easy to interpret, that person looks great, this is what they did, I just won't let it. So there is the potential for doing harm. And if I were to try to summarize what I personally would avoid doing, I personally would avoid, if at all possible, in an eating disorders prevention program, talking about eating disorders. Mm, that's interesting. Mm. For me, I would go back to what it means to be a person in today's society, particularly what it means to be a young person. And if I were talking to um, women only, girls or women only, what it means to be a young woman. And I would talk about a number of the issues that I believe make up the nervosa. I don't know if you've ever considered that on your program. Everybody knows what anorexia means. Everybody knows what bulimia means. What does nervosa mean? When you say she is suffering from bulimia nervosa or she has bulimia nervosa or he has anorexia nervosa, what does nervosa mean? Yeah. It's really hard, it's really hard yeah. to define. After you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> people will start, I mean, you could ask a room full of, ask a room full of your colleagues at, at CAR, experts, and you'll have people stuttering and saying, well, it means of the nervous system. And, but we don't talk about Tourette's syndrome as a nervosa. We don't talk about Alzheimer's disease as a nervosa. Nervosa implies there's some kind of nervous condition underlying the disorder, which implies there's some kind of psychopathology underlying the disorder, which implies that we need to explore once again what is driving this, what is underneath. And I would argue that what's often underneath, not always, is again a set of prototypical concerns that you've probably addressed on your program a million times. Negative body image. Drive for thinness, fear of fat, perfectionistic standards, unstable sense of self. Mm -hmm. So many elements. 
so many gender roles that have mm. the objectification, gender roles that have to do with the shoulds and the oughts and the musts. Mm. Now, those aren't the basis of every eating disorder. That's ridiculous to claim. Mm. Sometimes there's profound trauma. Sometimes, but if you're following me here, what I want to talk about from a prevention point of view is what we, all us, have in common and how those are fostered, reinforced, elaborated by our culture, and how that, in fact, tyrannizes most people in, in many ways. Mm. So in other words, I want to talk about that spectrum of weight and shape concerns, mm. the spectrum of negative body image, the spectrum of objectification, the spectrum of self-doubts and, and anxiety and guilt and shame and so on, what makes us, and, and what is it we collectively can do for and with each other to begin to create a world that doesn't foster the kinds of disordered attitudes? Where do you see, Michael, the future for eating disorder prevention research? Where do you think going forward this, where we should we, we be focusing our prevention efforts? I see, th as usual, things in threes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I, see, I see three fronts that if I were in charge of the entire field, uh, I would put my energy and my resources. Um, one of them is at a broad cultural level mm -hmm. of the sort that um, Bryn Austin mm -hmm. and others are doing in um, Massachusetts in particular, and by that I mean looking at how easy it is for adolescents and young adults to obtain very harmful weight and shape management products. Yeah. We have, we have controlled and, and successfully controlled uh, access to cigarettes, for example, we have uh, successfully, in some ways, control when it comes to reduction in drunk driving and so on, uh, access to alcohol and, and cars and things for young people. And at the same time, it's very, very easy for people to buy these unregulated products, and they're unregulated in terms of testing of them in the United States and also in terms of the marketing of them. And Bryn Austin and some others have taken upon themselves to work with parents, to work with politicians, to work with researchers in a variety of fields, including economics, mm -hmm. uh, public no, health, psychology, psychiatry, yeah. and to begin the process of creating legislation that's going to change the availability of these products, and at the same time, educate, raise the awareness of a lot of important people. And this, I think, has been successful in programs like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. It's been very successful in the development of increased opportunities for young women in athletics, at least throughout the United States. So I see... Um, at a broad scale, legislative policy actions mm -hmm. pertaining to prevention 
broadly seen as one front. The second front is there are some successful prevention programs. And I agree with Eric Stice and I agree with Bar Taylor and um, Corinna Jacoby and others that we need to disseminate these programs mm -hmm. as broadly as possible. And that's easier said than done, but the example of the Body Project and um, worldwide uh, scouting programs is oh. a good one. It is possible, as Nadia knows, to do this. It's not easy, but in the process, I believe, Nadia, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you begin employing those C's I mentioned before, consciousness raising, competence building, um, and then the final thing that needs doing, and this is tricky, but it, it becomes a circle with the cultural one, and that is, I hear people say, well, we know that programs for high-risk people, ages 14 to 24, are going to be the most successful. We should put our resources into that. And I understand that, and I say, that would be a tragedy if we put most of our resources into that. Are we really going to allow a large number of people to get to age 14, 15, and 16, feeling terrible about their bodies, eating in unhealthy ways, cutting themselves off from their potentials in many ways, and then say, well, you people didn't make it, so we'll intervene here. I really think we need to be developing a lot of programs for young families, a lot of programs in um, kindergartens and, and primary schools, elementary schools, I call them here. We need to be developing ways to increase the resilience of, of younger people and doing it through teachers, coaches, clergy, people that have an impact, pediatricians mm -hmm. that have an impact on young people. We need a cultural transformation with regard to body image, weight and shape concerns, eating, gender, and so on. I know this, this probably sounds heretical, but I don't believe such a revolution or transformation will take place through school curriculum. Right. Where do you, th where do you see it happening? I, I see it happening through citizen action. I see it happening through... Um, advocacy efforts. I see it happening through um, political work of the mm -hmm. sort that has been going on now in, in Spain, um, in Great Britain. Um, we need more Joe Swinsons. <laughs> we need more uh, people in power who are concerned about these issues as public health issues, as issues that affect the vitality of a culture. Yeah. This has been such a rich and thought-provoking yeah, discussion. We know we've been speaking for some time, so and we've got loads of other questions we'd like to ask, but I think maybe we should save those yeah, for another, another discussion. This has been yes. I'm I'm happy great. to be back on whenever you would like. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be great. It's, it's always a joy talking with you. Yeah. So, so our final question for you, though, Michael, is a question... Before we, let, before we can let you go. Yeah, we have to ask this final one. Um, it's a question that we ask all guests on the podcast, and it is every, well, Thursday morning now, we have a cake and coffee morning. And we would like to know, Michael, what cake would you bring to our car coffee morning? 
what would you gift us with? It's interesting that you ask because I am really not much of a cake eater. Okay. I don't know why, but I'm not much of a cake eater. And my favorite word, I do have a um, recognized fondness for carrot cake. Oh, that's homemade, homemade carrot cake. Yeah. That's what I would bring. You would bring a homemade carrot cake. So you would make it, Michael? I would bring a homemade carrot cake. <laughs> yes. You can bring that anytime, Michael. Speaking of gender, <laughs> I, I would bring a homemade carrot cake. That sounds delicious. You, yep. yep. You... So next time I am in Bristol, Bristol mm. or Bath, mm-hmm. I will promise to bring a carrot cake. Amazing. Under one condition. Oh, what? <laughs> Jade will produce a photograph of herself at Stonehenge. Oh. <laughs> yeah, just for our listeners, prior to this recording, we acknowledge that I have never visited Stonehenge being from Bristol. So Stonehenge is pretty much on our doorstep. It's right on my doorstep. So Michael, I will hold you to that. A carrot cake for us and a picture of Stonehenge for and me. You. And me. Yeah. <laughs> no okay. Photoshop included. Yes. <laughs> it will be a real carrot cake that I bring as well. Oh, good. excellent. Good, That'll good. be great. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you ever so much, Michael. It's been really wonderful talking talking to you and it's having you on the, on the podcast. Thank you Okay. So take care. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye now. You really better get yourself to Stonehenge, Jade. <laughs> Tell me about it. I, I couldn't let Michael down like that, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's too funny. Um, also, love the analogy with the birds. And I never thought on this podcast, at least, we'll be talking about octopuses. Yeah. Sorry, Michael. It's octopuses, not octopi. Just to clarify that. Mm -hmm. Common mistake, though, apparently. And fun fact for you, because my sister's actually reading a book about... Oh, how did we say this again? Kephlopods. Oh, yeah, about kephlopods. No, kephlods. No, kephlopods. It is kephlopods. Yeah. My sister's reading about kephlopods, which is like the family that include octopuses, squid, cuttlefish. She's definitely the smart one in our family. Anyway, um, because... An octopus has no shell, and the only bit, only hard bit of an octopus are its eyes and its beak. Side note, I never knew octopuses had beaks. Did you? Yeah. I don't know where it is on there. I can't even picture where it would be. No. Somewhere. A- anyway, anyway. They, have, they have beaks. <laughs> Michael knew they had beaks. Right. Um, anyway, apparently an octopus, because it doesn't have any, like... Like an exter- it doesn't have like an external shell or anything. Apparently, an octopus can squeeze through a hole the size of its eyeball and can transform its body shape indefinitely. And I, I'm just going to read a little quote from, from this book. It's, it's too much. It's Your too sister's much. book. That she's yeah, reading. my sister's book. Um, to completely forego both skeleton and shell is an is an unusual evolutionary move for a creature of this size and complexity. An octopus has almost no hard parts at all. Its eyes and its beaks are the largest, and as a result, it can squeeze through a hole about the size of its eyeball and transform its body shape almost indefinitely. The evolution of cephalopods yielded, in the octopus, a body of pure possibility. Wow. I know. It's quite something, isn't Mind it? Mind-blowing. I know, it's quite something. Who uh, said we were just experts in body image? <laughs> I know, thanks Octopuses. to... Octopuses. Uh, thanks, my sister. In case you're interested, the book is called... My sister sent me a, a, a link. It's, um, it's called The Other Minds. 
The Octopus and the Evolution of Intelligent Life by Peter Godfrey Smith. So yeah, if those facts really blew your mind like they did me, check that out. <laughs> I know, she, she really writes the book. So. I, I've got follow-up questions, but I'll save them for after this, Nadia. So. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, well, I think we're done for this episode. <laughs> so many facts, I know. so little time. Um, uh, we also both have a lot of PhD work to do, so we probably should get back. It's uh, a good point, yeah, we should, we've got that too. Um, uh, yeah, we should get back to the zoo, um, which we enjoy very much. So join us next time for our part two, very exciting stuff, on our online dating and body image episode where we hear from the men.